You're listening to Cyber. This week's talk was part of a Neuroscience Trilogy presented in March. This talk was given by Professor Simon Bott, and it was called Has Your Brain Developed Normally? Enjoy the listen. Oh, wait, wait, can we have hands up? Who's had a baby? Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. Procreating is good. Okay. For those of you that haven't had babies and are going to have babies, you can get really cute photographs like this. All right. Take baby, throw baby in the swimming pool, and baby will start swimming. Okay. One caveat to that last statement: please, please do it before six months of age. Okay, around about five months it's a bit iffy, after six months definitely not, because if you throw a six-month baby in the swimming pool, it won't swim so well, and you'll have to dive in and rescue. Okay? Now the reason for that is in this baby, there is an innate circuit in its spinal cord that means it's capable of generating swimming activity. Okay? It's not because your baby's precocious. We all like to think that as parents. We're always like, oh, you know, little Johnny can walk, little Johnny can swim. Um, no, it's just a baby, okay? But they have in their spinal cord a circuit that is sufficient to generate that swimming behavior, okay? But only up until six months, okay? Everybody get that on board. Do not throw babies into swimming <laughs> pool after six months. Well, you can, but a lot, lot later, you know, when they're teenagers, just shove them in. Um, but not, at, not post six months. So, um, you know, there have been a number of seminal experiments. Um, in actual fact, uh, one of the great proponents of this central pattern generator was a guy called T. Graham Brown. And he was the sort of arch enemy of somebody who was quite famous in Oxford, a guy called Charles Sherrington. Um, and so, unfortunately, T. Graham Brown was slightly erased from the history books. But he explored these very, very early circuits. And so, if we're going to understand how your brains work, why not understand, understand the circuit that does walking? So I then went to Copenhagen and I, I published a, what I think is a lovely paper. It actually is a circuit for left-right walking. Okay? Why, when one leg goes forward, the other doesn't, and etc. etc. left-right. Um, and we published that paper back in 2003. And this was the first, uh, this is going to be a little movie. Um, I'm going to play the movie, shout out what you think is going wrong. Okay? We published that paper. And then suddenly, somebody said, you know what? You've got to check out our mouse. So everybody, let's check out the mouse. What's going on with our mouse? Nobody's shouting out. Everybody's stunned silence. It's a Cameroon. What? It's a white mouse. So we just published the paper, why you walk left, right, left, right. And somebody came and said, look. We've got a hoppy mouse. That's uh, this was for Swedish TV, so actually we were in, in Stockholm at the time. And they developed this mouse because actually they were looking at the way the visual system wires up. Okay? Seems completely different to uh, actually, you know, the way you walk. But they knocked out a gene that's involved in the way that your the visual input from your eyes is segregated. Okay. When they knocked it out, sorry, I'm going to play it a third time. Not, it's just, you know. um, and then they noticed, when they looked in the cage, the mouse hot. Now, it actually transpires that they thought it was the brain of the mouse, 
that was rerouted on its way down to the spinal cord. It turns out that mouse isn't so involved. It doesn't really use its brain properly uh, to engage its legs. A bit like, you know, as you were walking down to the public seat. Um, and what we showed in this paper was that actually it's a local spinal circuit. It's completely rerouted. And that's basically when the message comes, right foot go, the left foot goes at the same time. And that's why it's perfectly synchronous. It's a kangaroo mouse. Uh, what we really need to do is sequence a kangaroo, don't we? And then we can see if it's actually lacking the same gene, and that's what's happening to kangaroos. But nobody's done that yet, to my mind. Now, what is powerful about that is that's the genetics. They have manipulated the gene that's responsible for wiring up your brain. Okay, they've just deleted a single gene, and you become a hopping mouse. And what happened in, in the spinal cord field around about 2000 to 2005 was that we started um, identifying genes that give rise to every type of cell in your brain. Okay? We all like to think we're improving our intelligence as we're sipping beer and what have you, and then new nerve cells coming in. But actually, what the moment that really matters is right about then. Okay? This is a picture of the forebrain of the mouse. Um, midway through the mouse gestation, it's actually ten and a half days. Um, and this is the first moment that we can really recognize the nervous system. What you're looking at, do you see this sort of loop structure here going up by the side? I'll take what I can get my point out and start firing lasers. Um, what we have here is actually what's going to end up being the forebrain. Okay, I'm going to tell you what we can do. This is the mouse forebrain at six days of age. So you can just look at that, pass it around the room. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the size of that and what's going on. But that's a six-day-old mouse brain now. This is 10.5 days after conception. And what is happening at this stage is something we call cross-repressive interactions. Okay? This is where genes in the developing brain are starting to sculpt out what they call domains, progenitor domains. And what you can see is, you, you see these red dots here. These are neurons. These are growing neurons. And then actually we've got green dots, and where they overlap, you get this orange as well. And these are cells that are starting to become a certain thing. They're going to become a cell in your mature brain. Now, I think the concept of cross-repressive interactions is a little bit hard to grasp. So what we're going to do is we're going to play Connect Four. Okay? What I need is two volunteers to play Connect Four. It's going to be a slightly odd game of Connect Four. It's also going to be a race. So I need two quite competitive people. Do I have any volunteers to play Connect Four? <laughs> Luigi? Right, we need one more. Uh, Come on, somebody else. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, okay. Excellent. Alright. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. You, you pile up all the other ones there. Now, obviously the point to connect for... I'll hand out the right ones on this side. The point to connect for is to connect up four. We're not going to do that. Can anybody think of any interactions... You know, 
think historical, think literature, things that really hate each other. People that really hate each other. Anybody got an arch enemy? Nobody think of any arch enemies? British and the French. British and the French, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not Brexit all of a sudden. Arsenal Tottenham, very close to my heart. Let's see if you support Tottenham. If you support Arsenal, you can get out of the room straight away. Sorry, what's that? Batman and the Joker. Batman and the Joker. <laughs> Come on, be a bit more literal. Hatfields and McCoys. Hatfields and McCoys, well-known American at a certain time, 19th century American, which I Fantastic. Excellent. <laughs> okay. um, I'm going to go with the Montagues and the Capulets. All right, there we go. There's one. Uh, <laughs> There we go. You can be Romeo. Okay. <laughs> Just think Shakespeare. Come on, this is Oxford. <laughs> well, actually, I suppose I should say it in Right. You need to come round to me. <laughs> well, I think it might end up okay, Jack. <laughs> I don't actually want bloodshed. Right. Now, what I want you to do, um, I, I, I did one earlier. Oh. <laughs> Cheating. Yes. Um, what I want you to do is to try and fill, just make sure the thing's in place, the vertical rows as quickly as possible, and we're going to see who wins. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think, should we have some rules for this? No, no. no okay. <laughs> you, you can do two at once, whatever. Okay, so you've got to fill the vertical row, and we're going to see, and what I noticed about Connect 4, never noticed this before, is it, it's not even. Right, there has to be a winner down the middle. Okay? All right, are we ready? You, you might want to just, so the audience can see. This is like... <laughs> All right, are we ready? Yep. Steady, go. Oh, wait, you've got to... Oh! This is, this is, there is a rule, yes. You've got to go down the side. You've got to go down the side. Let's go. Who's going to get the most? It's looking good for yellow. Luigi's been practicing. Juliet, sorry, has been practicing. Oh my goodness, cross your press of interaction. Oh, he's run out. Oh! Excellent. Thank you very much. Round of applause. I'm sorry, Ron. <laughs> I wonder what's going on here for a while. But okay, this. So what we just saw there is essentially. Let's imagine these are signaling molecules. Okay, and what they're going to do is compete for the brain. And you can only be one or the other. You can only be a Montague or a Capulet. You can't be a mix. Okay. So very, very early on in your brains, actually around about eight, nine weeks post-conception, uh, signaling centres, and there's actually one right down here in the crux of the brain, and there's also one right at the top of that round bit, start releasing molecules that will fight over what we call progenitors, so a buzzword, stem cells. Okay, so they start fighting over cells that have no fate. They don't know what they're going to become, but just like we saw, molecules will start coming in and they'll try and pad out and try and capture as many of these as possible. So what you'll see is the green band ends around about here. Okay, so most of the green cells are from down there. And we've got a few red ones that have escaped that. So actually, there's, there is a progenitor domain boundary there. Just like in Arconet 4, they've competed, they've set a boundary at that point. 
What you'll also see is you don't get many red cells beyond this point here. Okay? And that, the bit at the top, let's go back to the pointer, this bit here is actually going to be what you would regard as your brain. Where's our little mouse brain going? Yeah, so most of what you can see in that little mouse brain, it's, it's very smooth, unlike our brains. If you saw, uh, was it monkey brains yesterday? Yes. So they're, they're all convoluted, they've got these gyrally soft. The mouse is very smooth, but most of what you can see comes from this domain here. Okay? Now, one of the interesting things, we don't have any label in that top bit, this is just background. And that's because we didn't know the gene. We didn't know the gene that was responsible, if you like, the red bits as opposed to the yellow ones. We've got the yellow ones down here. We didn't know what was going on up here when we took this photograph. And so these molecules are going to fight it out and they're going to start specifying progenitor domains. They're going to start specifying the cells that make up your brain. Now, the good news is, for all of those that have got doubts about normal brains, I can tell you right now, that this stage, this genetic stage, all pass off successfully in your brains. Okay? Those genes had their fight, had their game to connect for, they partitioned the cells in the right manner and populated the brain. Okay? Because if not, you have very, very severe prognosis. You essentially have a very severe form of neonatal epilepsy or really significant mental retardation, and you probably don't make it beyond sort of about four or five uh, years of age. So a really big one is this encephaly, which is smooth brain, so much like our little mouse. Where is the mouse? Mm -hmm. So the good news is that happens successfully in each and every one of your brains. So we can tick that off and we can sort of move on. Um, so the beauty, however, of knowing those genes is that we can uh, we modify the mouse, we modify the genetics of the mouse so that we can label the offspring from those genes. So for example, with the yellow uh, tokens here, we would follow those yellow cells in the brain as it starts getting older and older. And that's what you see here. This is approximately the age, this is a small section through a brain that size. Each of these cells is 12 thousandths of a millimetre. Okay, 12 thousandths of a millimetre. So, I don't know, we can just roughly work out. It's maybe two, three hundred, four hundred thousandths of a millimetre across, maybe at most. And each of these green cells that you can see, all the sort of greeny orangey ones, is, have arisen from a gene that we've labelled in the developing brain. So we use genetics, we put in a fluorescent protein under the control of that gene, and we let the mouse grow up. And then you see in the brain all these, one, they look like stars, constellations of stars spread throughout the brain, um, and we can try and understand what they do. Okay? So we can say, okay, what is that cell? Who does it talk to? Who talks to it? How does it respond to behaviour? Oh, how does it function during behaviour? Now, um, I usually say at these kind of talks, if you want to come to the lab and find lasers and nerve cells, you can. Okay? Because that's essentially what we do. I actually had somebody take me up on the offer recently, which is slightly embarrassing. But um, 
what we do in the lab is we use lasers, we fire lasers at individual cells and we excite them. Okay? And the reason for doing that is that if we go in and we say record from this cell here and we excite all the other cells in the brain, we can know who's talking to it. What circuit is it part of um, and how does that then circuit um, contribute to behavior? Um, the next, I'm just going to show you a little video of actually how we do this. It's a bit dark, but what you will see is a blue flashing light. Um, I hope everybody's okay with strobe effects. Yeah? Everybody okay with strobe effects. I fully appreciate that. Um, so it's not going to last very long, but what you will see is. That is, it actually, in this case, it's an LED, it's not a laser. And it's flashing down onto a slice of brain, a brain slice. Um, and we would ordinarily be recording. I don't actually have the recording electrodes around here, but we would be recording from that cell, and we'd be firing the laser down onto that brain source. Now, what kind of information can you get from that? Let's go again. Flashing lights to entertain. Has anybody played battleships? I presume everybody's played battleships, right? We should have a big game of battleships. We've got to have connect for let's move on to battleships. What you have in battleships is a grid. Okay? You don't know what your opposition player has on their grid where they put their battleships. So you just go across the coordinates, you know, A1, B7, and you try and, and hit those ships. What we don't know in our slice is which cell talks to another cell. So we put across this slice of brain with all these illuminated cells. We record one of them, and then the laser fires. And it fires in a random pattern across that slice, exciting all the cells at which the laser fires. Now, the reason we use a laser is it gives you a really accurate point of, of simulation. And if we hit the ship, if we hit a cell that's talking to ours, we then detect a deviation in the signal. Okay? Then we put all of those deviations together, and what you get is like a heat map. You essentially reveal the ships of the opposition front. So you can see who's talking to, to that cell of interest. Now, um, my lab, and there's a number of them here tonight, have absolutely been heroic over the last probably five, six years. We have mapped the mouse brain from the moment it's born until it's a, it's a juvenile mouse. So that will be about 21 days of age. Okay? So they take that, that little brain. That's a little brain. Okay. Has everybody seen the little brain? Okay. We take something that size, we slice it up to three hundred thousandths of a millimeter. We then fire lasers at it across a grid and we look at the response profiles. And we've done that all the way from birth, and trust me, they're a lot smaller at birth. As I say, through to P21, that, that juvenile age. P21 means postnatal day 21. And we've looked at the connections. And I think the, the biggest surprise to us was that what we found were that the connections in the developing brain, in that P6 brain, so that's a six day old mouse, they do not resemble the connections that we are brains right now. Um, so most of this would be actually embryonic computers. So around about P12, so 12 days after birth in the mouse, is equivalent to about birth in the 
And so what we found instead were transient networks, transient connections between the cells. Okay? Now, that in a sense seems a little bit bizarre. But my analogy for that is this. Okay, this is in honor of Christiana, uh, a homeland. You know, what you're doing is you're trying to build a brain, you're trying to build you know, an architecture. And what we know is if you don't get the foundations right, or your scaffolding is slightly awry, then you're going to have problems building a, a beautiful tower like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Okay? And what we think these transient circuits, these connections that we see amongst all of these cells, let me just get back to that lovely picture here. What we think has happened is that the brain actually has a scaffold. Now, you might say, well, why, you know, I think we're all about plasticity and, you know, our parents could scar us for lives, kind of thing. Um, what we think that scaffold does is it actually constrains the possibilities. Okay? So you form, and it happens to be these green cells that you're seeing right here. You form connections with these cells that predict the way that you want the brain to be built. Okay? So the genes play out in the embryo. They set parts of the scaffold up into the brain. They come up they form these particular transient connections that enable your brain then to start taking information from the world around you. There comes a point when you need to dismantle that scaffold and you take it down. Okay? Now, um, is anybody going to interview for medicine at Keeble College? No, I'm looking at the audience. I hope not, because you're thinking illicitly if you are. Um, this toy is part of the Einstein range of toys. By the way, this is an interview question. Now, the, the manufacturers of this, this toy, so it's doing a weird thing. Oh, no, it's sweet as well. Oh, a little mouse for that. It is actively used, by the way. Um, by me in the lab all the time. Um, the makers of this Einstein range of toys believe that if you give this to your offspring, they will become supremely intelligent. Okay, who's, who's like to have children next? Anyway, you can grab it off me at the end. Um, now, why do we think that is? Because there's plenty of interesting stuff. Lots of interesting stuff, yeah. Isn't it that they'll just throw it away and then start playing with something else? And it hit the squeaky bit, and then suddenly they'll be like. I mean, what we've got here, well, first of all, we've got a mirror. You know, babies love mirrors. What it does to a large degree is stimulate all the senses. Okay? Babies love to chew. We've got different textures. Obviously, we've got loads. Oh, that's much better. Different textures, different patterns, everything going on. Okay? Um, I actually gave it to one of our candidates and he said, oh yeah, yeah, no, it stimulates every sense apart from smell. And we were like, oh no, it smells of banana. It <laughs> <laughs> was an old bit of banana stuck in the middle. Um, <laughs> I don't know where the light came from. 
Um, so yes, it stimulates the senses. So what we think is happening is that you, you put this scaffold in place and then the senses start kicking in. They start saying, okay, this is good information. And actually, Chico's point about throwing the toy away is a good one. Because it comes back to a really fundamental point about normal brains. Okay? If you ever look at a baby, yes, they do explore it. They'll bite into it and then they'll get bored. And they'll get bored after a certain period of time. And actually, part of the scaffold we found was a connection, and it's a connection from some of these red cells down here up into the area that first receives sensory information. And it forms a loop, this connection. It's a reciprocal loop, so it goes round and round and round. And one possibility is that the whole point of that loop is baby gets an old object, they're like, oh, that's interesting. The loop starts firing. And it turns out that that loop, when it gets to a certain stage of engagement, suddenly switches to being inhibitory. That would be the idea. And at which point it says, great, I know everything about that, chucks it out, moves on to the next object. Okay? So that part of the scaffold is there just to enable you to get bored with an object, to explore an object, you know, for four or five minutes, probe it, use your teeth, what have you, and then you chuck it away. Now, what we have in the lab, um, and this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but please forgive me, we have schizophrenic mice. Okay? We have, or we used to have, an autistic mouse in theory. Now, what these are are mice where they've identified a gene in humans, in human populations. So, for example, uh, there's a gene called this one doesn't mean a great deal, but there was a family up in Edinburgh. They identified that one of the chromosomes in an individual was translocated. That means it was mucked up. The genes were mucked up in that individual. Um, they, one of the things about that individual was they had 70-odd living relatives. Um, I'm trying to think how many living relatives I have. Uh, in this, but 70 is quite a large number. Transpires that 34 of those relatives had this same genetic mutation, and 16 of them were diagnosed as being schizophrenic. Okay? So immediately you could say, well, maybe this genetic translocation, this gene, this one, is involved in schizophrenia. There's another gene called neuregulin 1, which is also uh, being implicated. It's more of a historical candidate um, for schizophrenia. And what we've done in mice is remove that gene or overexpress that gene. What happens in an animal where we overexpress neuroglin 1 is that that loop, that scaffold circuit, is never there. Okay? So that ability to maybe transiently interact with an object, to explore an object and then get bored of it, isn't there. Now, I don't know what is happening in that mouse, actually, in those early stages when you would normally have the scaffold. We, we have no insight into that at the moment. I think that would be a really fundamental experiment to do. But you can imagine that if you mark up genes, and these are much later genes, they're genes that are involved in the way that you wire your brain together. Okay? You impact on the scaffold, and that's why you get the leading tower of peace. Okay? So, what you're missing is a few poles, a few rivets. Of, I'm, I'm not very good at scaffolding. Anybody know anything about scaffolding? You know, one of the nuts and bolts that you put your scaffold together 
is missing. And as a consequence of that, you build a slightly wonky tower. Okay? Now, this is what we believe is happening in things like schizophrenia, in autism, bipolar disorder, and a wide range of others. It's that components of that scaffold have gone missing. And that's why, you know, this is a tower, right? I mean, it's beautiful. In actual fact, just like the brain, it's got pretty well six layers. Forget the little bit on top. Um, it's a beautiful structure. By any means, it's a tower, but it's slightly wonky. And actually, schizophrenia is a really good example because what happens in schizophrenia is around about, and I, I, I do scare my undergraduates with this at the start of the lecture on it, around about the age of 19, 20, 21, you, you know, individuals start to develop a personality. Is anybody either? <laughs> if you've got siblings under the age of sort of 18, you can just say you don't have this. The reason for that is that you get massive dopaminergic innovation. And what you've had up until then is a wonky tower. And then the dopamine comes in, well, I'm going to have to do it this way, and it pushes the tower over. Okay? And the brain no longer becomes functional. I think with something like autism, now autism you can recognise the symptoms now, really early on. Two three years of age okay? and that's possibly you know, a more fundamental uh, structural rewiring but I think it's you know, something that's really intriguing then is that we need to work out what those components of the scaffold are now I'm going to whiz all the way back to this one here the components of the scaffold are born down here they're born at the bottom of the brain. And actually, as I said to you, it's this bit up here that is going to become all that lovely folded, what you think of your cerebral cortex. Somewhat bizarrely, these are the scaffold components. So they've then got to move. They've got to actually migrate up all the way up into this dorsal aspect and make those connections. Okay. So they, they're born here. Then they're going to journey up and start controlling this here. Now, this isn't exactly proven, but one thought, one hypothesis, fairly reasonable hypothesis, is that actually, therefore, you need genes, you need the genetics to control that process. Okay? The stuff that goes on up here, it's pretty well all in place, it can be fairly plastic, it can let you respond to the environment. But the scaffold components are determined by genes. They don't really know where they're going to end up and who they're going to hook up with. And because they're dependent on genes, they're more susceptible to mutations, and that's why mutations in these particular cells are known to give rise to a lot of these neurological, neurodevelopmental disorders. The cool thing about it, though, is that they're hardwired. Okay? They... Need they need the genes to integrate into the circuit. They need, they literally are hardwired. So, we go back to our leaning tower of Pisa, where the scaffold is wrong. It's missing a part of the scaffold. Okay, this is where it's going to go slightly crazy. What we can do is we can take cells from here, from a normal individual, and directly transplant them into the brain of somebody who could potentially become schizophrenic or autistic. Okay? Because they're a hardwired component. Because that's the way 
if you like, nature has designed it, that these cells set off on their course and they're purely, that function, that scaffold function is purely determined by the genes. So, take them from here. Oh, you know what? Let's grow up some stem cells. I mean, we hear about stem cells all the time. Let's just get some stem cells, direct them to the appropriate faith, and stick them into the brain so that they can fill in for those missing bits of the scaffold. There's a sort of silence. Nobody buying it? I think it has problems. The fundamental problem is you're going to have to go to the mother of the newborn baby, okay? You're going to have to basically screen them for their, we're going to have to look at um, you know, their genome. You're going to come up with, maybe they're missing a gene for schizophrenia. Maybe they're 54% likely chance of becoming schizophrenic. Okay? And then you're going to have to sell to that mother that you're actually just going to stick some nerve cells into her brain, into her baby's brain. Slightly problematic, I can assure you. Okay. But increasing our knowledge of what is specifying these cells, of the genes, that, the pathways that are going down and sending these cells up on their, this amazing journey, where they go to be that, hooking up in the correct fashion. If we can know those genes, if we can understand how they want to have up, and potentially we can push the tower. Upright. Okay. So, Why would you want to? Sorry? Why would you want to? Why would you want to? And that's an even better question. Because actually, who's to say that any of us have a normal brain? And what is a normal brain? Absolutely. So are these cells are neurons or? Yes, yeah, they're interneurons. So they're a small population of cells. I'm going to leave it there. A small population of cells that are about 15, 20% of the cells actually in the cerebral cortex, in the main part of the brain. And even the main ones that are the scaffold are even smaller subset. But yeah, none of us have a right to change anybody else's brain. So we are the sum of what's in there. So, do we want to do that? I'll leave that to you. You can decide. But is it possible? Okay, thank you very much. There's a scaffold. Yes. So is this foundation straight or is it not straight? Right. So actually, my take on that is environmentally sucks. So you know, mm -hmm. one that everybody latches onto is you know, if you smoke too much cannabis or something, you can develop schizophrenia. Is that actually all you're doing there is you probably had a normal scaffold, or maybe a slightly squiffy scaffold, and then you've had cannabis, and that's just pushed it over as well. Okay. So. 
understand that, um, you know, the scaffold is there to help us to try and constrain normal development. But it can be pushed off and it can be adjusted by, you know, you three or you. Okay? I, we don't know in humans, um, and, you know, again, this, this is all done in mouse models, whether or not this really exists uh, in humans and when it exists up until. When, when the scaffold is present, um, but let's say you have the scaffold even during your teenage years, and then you start smoking cannabis, and then that basically pulls parts of the scaffold apart. And just, just one of the other things is that actually, um, like this, if you didn't have the scaffold in the first place, you might behave normal, you might have a normal town, but when you smoke cannabis, says that's the push that really knocks it over. So you might be predisposed to develop something like schizophrenia, yeah. but it's not going to happen. Okay. And again, that comes back to a rather nasty ethical concern of like, can we actually do this to, to babies? And yeah, it's not easy. Um, there are a lot of them are. Uh, I think actually one of the major, uh, you know, one of the issues is now actually working out what they do on the, the circuit level. Um, I have to say, you know, when I when I completed my PhD on cockroaches, um, I always to this day remember going in to see Bob and he said, "Congratulations, Simon, you you just got a PhD in a dead science." And the reason for that was back in the 90s, everybody believed that science had to go genetic and molecular. You know, it was a huge revolution. We were going to work out what the genome, do that, do everything, and be able to play with genes. As it transpires, what we really have now is a dearth of physiologists to interrogate like we do, mapping circuits, firing lasers, actually to work out what's happening as a consequence of those genetic mutations on the cellular, on the circuit level. So, I mean, you know, there are countless uh, genetic models where these genes have been preserved, but people really don't know what's going on in the circuit. And actually, until we published the paper on the scaffold, a lot of those studies were done, you know, they do the mutation in the developing brain and look at the consequence in the adult. And that makes perfect sense. But that scaffold is there literally in the first few days of life. And so you're missing what we would call the etiology, the, the actual real effects on that early circuit. And I, so I think that, you know, criticism may, maybe is too strong a word, but we need to go and look at actually how the brain comes online. And we have to understand that the baby brain, the neonatal brain, is not what we have in our, in our heads right now. It works in a completely different way. And, you know, I don't think we will truly understand things like autism, schizophrenia, until we appreciate that, until we go back. And I think there is a real drive. There are a number of groups, particularly across Europe, who are, who are thinking that way. But it's almost like a flaw in, in research into neurodevelopmental disorders that they always look in adult lives at the consequence. And that doesn't show actually what the positive factor was early in development. But yeah, 
with we're going out there trying to explore genes, trying to work out. <coughs> so, so you'll see. disorders, which is depression, um, studies which seem to suggest that um, there can be an interaction between gene and environment, such that if you have one variant of a gene that's um, connected with serotonin, you know, serotonin sports a gene, you are more likely to become depressed, but yeah. that, um, you're li that, that this depends on also having a negative life events. And I was wondering if this um, was relevant at all to these studies about... Um... Yeah, I mean, I would take it even back to more basic level. There are a number of studies. So actually the, the scaffold cells are actually inhibitory cells. And there's a number of studies that show that if you perturb the environment, you can actually uh, make them excitatory instead. Um, so yeah, we shouldn't underestimate the way that the environment, I guess it comes back to, you know, sort of like the smoking of cannabis, how it can influence the genes that then reroute the scaffold to put it off on the wrong track. Um, so, yeah, don't think that nature and nurture are completely separate entities. They're hugely blocked, which just makes our task a little bit more difficult in trying to find the path, for sure. Yeah. yeah. From an evolutionary point of view, does human brain have developed more scaffold, immutable scaffold, or less compared to Right. Um, I honestly don't know. Um, we, I don't think anything like this has been tried in humans. Um, what I'm not telling you is a slight complication to this story, which is actually that we think every part of the mouse, different parts of the mouse brain use a different scaffold. Okay, so even in the mouse brain, the area that's involved in touch uses a different scaffold to the area that's involved in visual processing. Okay, so if you have different types of scaffold even in the mouse brain, goodness knows what's happening in the human brain. Um, it probably is something else completely different. Um, I mean, one of my ideas of, you know, well, I don't know why we have different scaffolds, maybe. But what you often see is in individuals that are, say, autistic, they're very sensitive to particular textures. Um, what you sometimes find with schizophrenics is they'll have either auditory, well, mainly auditory hallucinations. And it could be that their genetic deficit, or the deficit that has sort of triggered the, the failure in the scaffold, affects a component that's important for that part of the brain. So it might not be that the scaffold is completely miswired across the whole brain, but just certain parts that it will really be affected. Um, and yeah, humans, I, I don't even know how we would go, begin to go about answering that question, but it's a great question. And one, what I do actually, we're going to build a computer on the brain, right? And then, sorry, just sitting here again. And then we're going to humanize that model, and then we're going to ask it questions about how humans with all our wonderful functionality can come and work. Um, one thing, don't be rude about mice, okay? I, I was talking to Christiana on the way here, 
uh, about this debate of like, you know, aren't humans wonderfully intelligent? Yeah, everybody sat themselves on the back. Um, I said to Christiana, okay, look, there's a drain there. We just happened to be walking past the, um, the wreck of the canyon. There was a drain. I said, okay, what I'm going to do is drop you and the mouse down the drain. And I bet you I know who's going to survive. Okay, the mouse is, it will be in its environment. Uh, you know, they have these wonderful whiskers that can sense our environment in the way that we see. Okay? You down a cold, wet drain, no chance. Mouse down a cold, wet drain, fantastic. Beautifully adapted. Yes. I think one of the old models from like a long, long time ago is effectively had a preponderance of neurons. As you grew, you kill them off. Well, you kill them off, they die. The yes. ones which weren't useful or weren't reinforced or work out, and they just kind of withered away. Is this, is this basically a replacement model for that? You know, I, I think, yes, there are refinement of connections. And actually, it's, um, it's a refinement of connections that aren't involved in the scaffold. So, can you see all these little black holes? They're all the ones that probably do the refining. The, but you see the. You can come closer if you like. Um, so, we're looking for a model for like best fit of a, a more hardwired adult brain of effective sensory recognition, effective behavior. So, you have the scaffold, you still need plasticity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, the plasticity is everything that's the black holes there. Yeah. So, you think the, the scaffold is hardwired. So the scaffold is like a how to get you as close as you can to an effective adult brain. To a normal brain, yes. These don't die away. Actually, they change their function. So the scaffold is dis it is dismantled, but they actually change their function in the adult brain. So they do something else in the adult brain. They don't die. They actually acquire different functionality. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, of course you need plasticity. I think one of the problems in the field of brain development is that we kind of get hooked on plasticity. Right? We all want to know why we're unique, why our brain is particularly wonderful. Okay? But you look around the room, I mean, look at everybody else. Okay? We all look different. Okay? That means we have different genes. Up until this moment in time, none of us have coincided, although sat on the bus with a number of one or two um, but we haven't really experienced the same things in life. But we all, apart from one or two people who put their hands up and stuff, think we're normal. So yes, plasticity is a wonderful thing, but we need constraint. And I think that's something that neuroscientists, we have neglected. It's actually, as you said, how you can get to, not even adulthood. I mean, I would say, you know, being a juvenile, being a teenager, being reasonably normal. What is the new function that the scaffold cells take on later on? Um, they're in, so all of these cells, these are inhibitory cells, they're, um, they're involved in regulating the flow of information through the brain. Um, what you typically would see is brain waves. Yeah? We all know the brain waves, e.g. these lovely, sort of, they're synchronised neurons. The way you send information through any group of cells is by synchronising them together, and that gives you the brain waves. These cells are responsible for doing that. Okay? They're actually responsible for doing that in the developing brain, but they do it in a slightly different way. And when you get to the adult brain, they're still synchronizing your cells, letting the information flow through the cortical network, through your brain, in an appropriate fashion, just with a you know, few tweaks here and there. Okay? 
Okay. But if you have normal brain waves, I put the EEG on your head, and you saw those lovely normal brain waves, it's because of those cells. Okay. So they synchronize other cells to let information through. So earlier you said, building uh, on what you said earlier about the uh, stem cells injected in the brain of the newborn. So I would imagine that if we were to decide that that's something that might be of interest, so it's something that we might actually want to do, and if we had enough uh, like reasonable proof to see that that's actually something that might prevent schizophrenia, I would still imagine that such um, invasive treatment as a, that has a preventive function as opposed to a uh, like Especially mm -hmm. cure. We still face a huge amount of um, uh, like regulatory hurdles because of trials. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, I can't because I, I, I think it's an ethically impossible experiment. Actually, for the point that the lady raised at the front, that you have no right to interfere in somebody else's brain. Um, you, we have zero right to make that decision. Um, what I do think is interesting, particularly about schizophrenia. Is that I keep on I always need my leading therapies. Is if we can work out, and it comes back to the human question, if we can work out when the scaffold is present in humans, can we do things like cognitive behavioural therapy? Can we hand it as a neuroscientist, can I hand it across to my psychology colleagues and do some sort of intervention or not intervention or don't do something um, that would topple the tower over. So I think that's a much more plausible view. But, um, you know, I, again, I think the, the, the real beauty is that we, we are who we are, that our brains are this, you know, I, again, not one of you in this room is normal. We're all individuals. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> what, you are normal or you're not normal? <laughs> Um, so, right, so, you know, I, I have to confess I'm a simple neuroscientist, I fired lasers at brain cells, and I'm really intrigued about how these things come online, but, you know, it, it's, it's almost an impossible experiment. It is potentially amazing that you can do this. I should say that people are actually doing those kind of experiments in mice. So they are transplanting cells in mice and reawakening early brain activity and sort of changing the way um, the brain can respond to the environment, but only in mice. Um, I don't think we I don't think we want to start manipulating human brains. Okay. So I'm sorry to cross your question. <laughs> it's fine, I'm not supposed to <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find details about all our upcoming events at www.oxfordcyber.com. Join us on Facebook at British Science Association Oxford Branch Group. And find us on Twitter, where our handle is at Oxford Cyber. See you soon.